Hello everyone, welcome to Cracking Addiction. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong and we have with us Celeste Yvonne. Now, Celeste has written a very challenging book called It's Not About the Wine. So Celeste, first of all, tell us why you chose that title and what does that title mean? Absolutely. When I first quit drinking, I think as I was processing how I got here, kind of the the questions we ask, the why, the how, um, one of the things I kept coming back to was mommy wine culture and this Mm. social narrative that playfully implies that our children are the reason we drink. And I think I put a lot of the blame on my drinking problem, on that narrative, that social narrative. But the more I dug deeper into the why and the more time I had in my recovery, the more I realized it wasn't about the wine specifically at all. And I started to recognize that while part of the problem is alcohol and its addictive nature, a lot of the problem is the roles women play in today's social structures and a lot of the pressures we put ourselves under or are put under uh, societally and in a traditional household. And even at the corporate level, there's a lot of these uh, pressures and these needs and desires to fit in that I think all contributed to the reason why we are seeing more women drinking and having drinking problems than ever. That's a very, if I had to do a synopsis of your book, I couldn't do it better than that. But of course, you wrote the book. Um, But there's a number of things I want to tease out there. First of all, the mummy wine culture, you know, this, where did it come from? And and let's talk about what it is as well. Firstly, where, where did it come from? Yeah, I mean, this concept of mommy needing to numb out to escape Mm. the challenges of parenting is not a new one. We've heard Mm. that concept from as early as the 50s and 60s. But the concept of using wine to do so really took off with social media in the 2010s. That's where we started to see the memes. And from the memes grew the t-shirts and the Etsy stores, uh, it really exploded in the age Mm -hmm. of social media. So that's the history in a nutshell. Obviously Mm -hmm. the alcohol industry played a role and it's pinkwashing to really connect with the women uh, in the market. Mm -hmm. Uh, But social media in and of itself also contributed a lot to that narrative. I mean, you know, phrases or T-shirts with phrases such as I'm the reason why mommy drinks, you know, I, I think that's that's so toxic, isn't it? I mean, it's it's it's, it's very clever marketing and it legitimizes was, alcohol, doesn't it? It's It legitimizes, it justifies risky drinking. Mm. When I mm. was a mother still in my problematic drinking, I needed narratives like that to make me feel okay about using alcohol as a crutch. And I did. I 
I used those narratives to justify what I was doing and to feel like other people understood. It gave me a sense of connection to other people in a way that I felt like I couldn't reach out to people otherwise about how challenging motherhood is. But when you kind of dismiss it as, I need a drink, this is really hard, and people all agree with you and say, I hear you, me too, it feels like validation. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm thinking about this in the context of substance use. Um, you know, so I, I'm thinking of phrases like, you know, gin back in the 19th century or the early 20th century was known as mother's ruin. And then, you know, barbiturates and then benzodiazepines were then known as mm -hmm. mommy's little helpers. Yes. And, and, and it was all, you know, the, this messaging was all about, you know, the, the, the relationship between women and substances and, you know, mother's ruin. I mean, that was a, that was a very emotively charged statement. And it was saying that mothers who drank gin were, were, weren't good people, but, and it's now morphed into something that's acceptable, but it's gone mm -hmm. via the, you know, the, the pills, the barbiturates and the benzodiazepines. The problems that, that women face in society haven't gone away, have they? If anything, I would argue they've gotten worse. And it's not necessarily because systemically the rules and regulations have gotten worse, but it's because more mothers than ever are returning to the workplace after they have children. And we don't have social structures or systems in place to support that nor do we have uh, households uh, with traditional relationships where there is a fair distribution of labor, uh, which is another problem uh, more and more mothers are dealing with as they try to return to work. They are coming home to household labor where the expectation is they will take on the majority of that work. So really, for every job a man does, a, a mother's got to do three because they've got to do their own work. They've got to be a mother and they've got to keep house. And statistically, it is getting better from what we can see mm. in the research, but mm. the levels are not even by a long shot and we still have a lot of work to do. So my hope is through uh, talking about it, through education and through just conversations like this, we can help educate uh, couples, especially ones who just had a baby or they're struggling in their relationship to have these conversations at home and talk about mm -hmm. redistribution of labor that's mm -hmm. more equal, that uh, is more conducive to raising the child together to doing the household work together and not just handing it off to the woman because it's a woman's work or vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. So really the, what, what, what you're saying is that mommy wine culture has grown out of the, in, the inequity, the gender-based inequity that is prevalent in society. Is that what I'm hearing? 
Yeah, I would argue that mommy wine culture is so popular because women don't feel seen or heard in other ways. And this yeah. feels like yeah. the one way that people can recognize each other's work and say, I see you. This is really hard. Mm. It's just mm. through a problematic message. And I, right. I do genuinely believe we can do this in healthier ways. My question is that is, is mommy wine culture simply born of gender role inequity? Or is it also a product of a lack of social support, a lack of social cohesion, a lack of social networking? Uh, and I say, I, I talk about social networking in the context that, that really um, there's a lot of evidence to suggest, and we, we know this from research, that, that social relationships are, are so protective for mental health and actually contribute to longevity. So you live longer and you live better, the more adequate, the more functioning social relationships you've got. And, you know, if that is the case, surely women can, or, or they are known to uh, foster and engage in social relationships much better than men. So what do you think is going on there? What's, what's, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head for a couple things. I think in motherhood, it can feel very isolating and lonely. We mm. live at a time where I think previous generations did have that village mentality that we've all heard. Mm. It takes a village. But in today's society, this concept of individualism has really reared its head that asking for help makes you weak. Asking for help makes you needy or a bad mom. And also these impossible parenting standards that we've put together uh, in alignment with that same concept and social media, the standard of what makes a good mom. It's somebody who can handle it all, who does it on her own, who makes it look easy and seamless and clean and beautiful. And I think all these things are falling on mothers and making them feel more isolated, more lonely, and even more incapable as a mother, fearful of sharing her truths that maybe motherhood doesn't look anything like that in her day to day, because let's face it, it doesn't look like that for most mothers, uh, but afraid mm. to be honest about that for fear of judgment or shaming. I also think about maternal mental health, and it's significantly lacking uh, the way I, I believe it should be. As soon as the baby's born, a lot of the health issues get turned towards the child, as it should, but the mother kind of goes missing in the meantime, uh, looking mm -hmm. after the mother's mental health in those early days after a child is born, even the first first through third year, they're very vulnerable days for a mother. And it would be helpful to have better support systems in place from a medical standpoint, from a psychological standpoint, to be checking in on the mother and maybe even checking beyond just a postpartum depression screening, which 
generally can make mothers again feel like if she doesn't pass the test, she's not a good mom or she'll be judged or stigmatized by her doctor. Uh, so I think there's better ways we can approach these topics with new moms that we're not doing. And a lot of the mothers are falling into challenging health situations that they don't have to be alone or unsupported in. So what I'm hearing then is that really is, is the advent of new technology, social media has actually eroded the social cohesiveness of the family and the village and has, and has exposed the vulnerabilities and isolations of new mothers. And also what you're saying is that there is a systemic societal failure to appreciate that, that the needs of mothers and, and also upon the, the uh, also the, the, the medical profession. So, I mean, that's an interesting point. So do you think that there's a stigma from the medical profession on new, on new mothers? I don't know if the stigma comes from the medical side of it or the mother itself, but I do know many mothers don't feel safe mm -hmm. to be completely candid in front of their doctor about how they're really fe feeling for fear oh, for, of for fear of what fear of judgment right. shaming fear of someone calling mm. uh protective services mm. fear of their children being taken from them because they yes. are not feeling competent as a mother or capable or in their best mental yeah. health state right that's an awful thing to, to a situation to be in, isn't it? You know, feeling stressed, needing help, but feeling that if you ask for help, you'll, you'll, <laughs> your kids are going to be taken from you. Absolutely. I mean, does that happen? I mean, do you have stories of that happening? I mean, can you, can you, your, your book is full of case studies, but I wasn't, I didn't read a case study where a child was uh, removed from the mom in your book. I don't have a case study where a child was removed, but I do have my own experience where I called my OB, uh, clearly struggling with postpartum depression, and she told me over the phone that I could either go to the mental institution or I could just shake it off and it's baby blues and it'll go away on its own. And those were my two options. And of course, if I went to the mental institution, the assumption would be that either my partner would take care of the baby or it would go to protective services. So as soon as those options were given to me, I immediately dismissed it. I said, you're right. Mm. It's fine. It's baby blues. And I hung up feeling like I was completely unheard, but also mm. I was deathly afraid of ever going there with a medical professional mm. again. That's awful. I'm so sorry to hear that. Uh, as a medical professional, uh, I, I think that that is a terrible indictment upon how we interact with the, you know, the vulnerable in our society. Our mothers should be celebrated because they do foster the next generation. I mean, let's face it, without mothers, where would we be? Without grandmothers, where would we be? That's perhaps another topic <laughs> as well. Um, uh, gosh, I'm, I'm a bit flummoxed. So your, your book, 
you have a number of case studies dotted throughout your book uh, uh, describing both your journey and also the issues. So let, let's tease out one of the, a couple of the case studies. What do you think is the most challenging case study in, in your book? Let's talk about that. Uh, when I think about the greatest challenges when it comes to motherhood, I, I think it's the mental load of motherhood and a lot of the pressures and weight that gets put on mothers. Uh, when I think about what the mental load is, I consider it the responsibility that comes with parenting, with household duties, with the calendar scheduling, family planning, mm. all those things that aren't necessarily written down, but somebody contains them all in their head and that often falls on the mother. I mm. think one of the things that, one of the connections I made in the book that I had never seen anybody else do before is the connection between the mental load of motherhood and the rise in women's drinking. And I think yeah. they they do go hand in hand because you think about these impossible parenting standards we put together, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, pressure to be and do it all, to not ask for help, combined with the fact that mothers are generally carrying the mental load of motherhood. And everything else kind of falls into place, the rise in drinking, the increased stressors on mothers, the increased mm. struggles for mental health support, uh, the mm. increased levels of postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. We're seeing all these increases line right up with the rise in women's drinking. They seem like they go hand in hand. And I, in my book, I kind of argue all those reasons as to why and how they correlate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when, as I was reading it, I, I was also reflecting on the COVID pandemic. And certainly, I, I don't know what the situation is in the United States, but certainly in Australia, um, we, we do know, evidence does suggest that uh, drinking amongst women went up because of the burden of household uh, chores and childcare responsibilities, whereas drinking among men went up because they were reacting against unemployment. It's not that they were actually helping around the house; they were slobbing around on the sofa, dealing with their own internal angst because they'd lost their job. So drinking went up in both genders, but for different reasons. And I, I think that the reasons uh, are actually demonstrative of that gender inequity that you were alluding to um, earlier. So we, we've spoken about mummy drinking culture. We've spoken about the gender inequity and the, the, the isolation of young mothers and the relationship between that isolation and increased alcohol consumption. What's the solution? Aside from the bigger picture that we need better systemic support for women, both in the workplace uh, and legislatively, and in the hospitals and at the doctor's offices, uh, which is obviously not an overnight solution. I think mm -hmm. the things mothers can be doing uh, to better receive the support is learning and understanding about the inequities at household labor. These are things that changes that we can be making today 
in our homes, in our relationships, whether mm-hmm. we're in a relationship or we're single mothers, uh, what can we do to better lean on others for support? What can we do to redistribute labor in the household? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what can we do to better support our own mental health? Uh, you know, sometimes when it comes to self-care, one of the most powerful tools we can do is creating boundaries. We live at a time where extracurricular, extracurricular activities are so prominent for our children and even just scaling some of these back and not filling up our schedules so much can make a significant difference, not only on our mental load, but on our mental health. And um, it does take a shift in your thinking to what makes a good mother. But when you think about it, having our kids be extremely busy and stressed out and overloaded with their recreational activities or sports or whatever it is, it can, it can cause its own harm for our children and taking a step back and reducing some of those activities. It can be beneficial. It can be beneficial for the whole family. And that's one of the easier things to do that we can implement immediately that don't require huge systemic changes to our culture. You've triggered me by by suggesting that um, the kids also don't need that kind of hectic, you know, scheduling. And I'm I'm when I when you were saying those words, I was thinking of the phrase "Let not the perfect be the enemy of the good." You don't have to be perfect because there's no such thing as perfection, is there? That you'll never be perfect. And uh, yeah, let not the perfect we- be the enemy of the good. What do you think of that? I love it. Um, what my husband Could it be always the title says, of your next book. <laughs> my husband always <laughs> says, "Done is better than perfect." And oh. um, <laughs> I I hear it from my own children. You know, when I ask them, when I'm signing them up for activities and whatnot, they have told me time and time again, "Can we can we stick to just one activity at a time?" I mean. My kids genuinely do not want to be doing three different sports at the same time. They don't want to be doing activities after an eight hour day at school or whatever the case is. Uh, yeah. They feel overwhelmed by the overwhelm too. And mm-hmm. I think we can feel so pressured by this concept of busyness, that busyness mm-hmm. means successful uh, busyness yeah. means we're doing everything right, that we lose sight of what it's all for, which mm. at the end of the day, if you don't have your mental health, you, do, you don't genuinely have anything. So if we could refocus what the priorities are, re- reducing mm. and minimalizing things like the calendar or the extracurriculars can make a huge difference for everybody. No. One of the things you said there was actually to to lean on others and to to get support. You've created your own type of social peers network, haven't you? Yes. Tell us about that. When the pandemic hit, my friend Emily Paulson started the Sober Mom Squad. And we have been doing 
meetings for anyone who is a mother and who's looking for a recovery network um, who is interested in being sober. And we've been doing that for over three years now. And it's something we still do three to six meetings a day, every day of the week. And uh, I lead two of those meetings each week. And we have a free meeting every Wednesday that we've been consistently doing since the first couple of weeks of the pandemic. And that was a yeah. huge um, game changer for me as a person in recovery, but for a lot of mothers who didn't have the support they needed in their recovery that they could access virtually. Uh, mm. And when all that changed with the pandemic and recovery meetings became virtual, this was one of the outcomes of that yeah. uh, transition. And it's been, I mean, I hear from people every day that say it's changed their life, but I often tell people I'm, I'm walking the walk, you know, I, it's changed my life as much as anybody. So I'm genuinely grateful to have that support, not just as somebody in recovery, but as a mother too. I think you need to be congratulated for creating something that really does have an impact. Um, I, I'm, I mean, look, I'm not a mother, but I am uh, an advocate for peer support networks. I believe that they provide enormous positive uh, benefit and, uh, and are a great, uh, powerful mechanism of change. And I can only imagine that a mother who's struggling and feeling isolated for the and doesn't want to reach out because of that stigma and shame that we talked about earlier. You've created a space where there is no stigma and shame, or where mothers can actually express their 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 vulnerabilities, their weaknesses, without being judged and without the threat of protective services swooping down on them and taking away their kids. So I think you need to be congratulated and um, celebrated as one of those people that actually does make a difference, and as you say, walks that walk. So uh, it's, oh, it's great you. to hear that you've done this. Um, are you able to share any of the, any stories uh, as a message of hope finally? Yeah, I don't want to call anyone out directly, but I can say in the past three years since I've been a part of a, a peer support community, mm. I have seen lives completely transform from feeling mm. hopeless, lost in motherhood, questioning everything, drinking too much, having health consequences and relationship consequences as a result to getting their lives completely back on track, loving motherhood, loving life, building stronger relationships through recovery, through friendship, through mm -hmm. education, and it empowers me when I see people and their transformations because I get to witness it from the very first day we meet at a meeting and every day thereafter. I get to see the transition and the transformation in real time. And mm -hmm. I get to become friends with these people around me. And it has been such a gift for me uh, through a community to be able to have these connections that I wouldn't have had otherwise. So really, I think it's important to 
get this message out that actually recovery is possible, hope is possible, even in those darkest, isolated moments. And you, you feel as if you, there's no one else you can rely on. If you're reaching out, actually, is, is one of the most difficult steps. But it's worth it in the end, isn't it? I think a lot of the women who come on our recovery meetings come in scared to death to tell anybody. Yeah. Uh, fearful that yeah. they're the only ones feeling like this. Not sure that there's any hope. And to see them realize that not only are they not alone, but there is hope and that change is real and possible is such a gift. And it's something we get to see through recovery. Celeste, I want to thank you for your time today. And I also want to thank you for the very good work that you do where you are. Thank you. Thank you, Fergal. This was wonderful. That's all for today, folks. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and this has been Cracking Addiction.